Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and I'm your host, and your name is Listener, and that's what you do. You listen. I'm actually sitting outside. My friend Eddie, he's not my friend. I've never fucking met him, and I don't know why I just said that. I am about to go interview Eddie Pepitone, the comedian, for a future Curious Podcast episode. Should be excellent. Going to do a quick cram of fun little tidbits, things that can help me to, you know, fucking slip into the slip into those truthful moments you know find a couple facts to connect with old eddie so that i can really mm, dig in get real connected you know feel some shit get some stuff out of them so we can get a good episode of potting going you know what i mean a little podcast action so that'll be a that'll be a future episode in a couple months probably um you know, it was interesting. I was thinking about the movie Joker, which I just saw. Don't worry, no spoiler alerts here for you, you know, very fragile fanboys that God forbid you hear that, like, I heard I heard there was a scene with cooking, and now it's ruined! The Joker would never cook! God! I wish I had never read that message board. I wasn't even looking for it, and all of a sudden I found out that the Joker wears shoes in the movie, and the movie is ruined! Listen, I understand wanting to have a good experience enjoying a film, but inevitably it's like, fuck, I mean, if it's like you're going to watch Avengers Endgame, and someone tells you that one of the, you know, Avengers dies in the last installment of the movie, I don't think that that should be that much of a surprise. Now, out of fear of the fanboy community, respectfully, I won't, you know, listen, it's still a movie that came out this year, so I'm not going to, like, ruin it for you yet, I guess. But it's like, come on. Is it is it that important that your disbelief is perfectly suspended for a two-hour clip and, God forbid, any outside influence ruins your, your uh, little slice of escapism? Anyway... I saw the Joker, Joker, the Joker, Joker. I loved it. I thought it was quite excellent. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix has successfully solidified my suspicion that I should just stop acting. And I'm very grateful for that. Because it's just so fucking good. Oh my God. Joaquin, whose man's is this? Where where are we at, Joaquin? You come on the podcast. I'm such a fan. Oh my god, I I would I just want to. You're a vegan. My wife's a vegan. I try not to eat a lot of meat. You're from a, I think uh, from some sort of like uh, commune, hippie uh, cultish thing family from, not like from Central America, South America. I'm not quite sure. Um... But whatever whatever it is that you're from and you've done, I am impressed. I am a fan. 
I love everything you've ever done, but Jesus, this performance in the Joker, it's, it's just unbelievable. It's just so multifaceted. It, it, it's just so committed. You can't see the strings. You know what I mean? For me, performances that don't really seem to like leave the ground are usually when you can kind of like see the actor at work pulling on the levers, you know? But like this just seems otherworldly. Like it's this, it's this faucet you turn on and it just starts coming out. It's a really good performance and everyone should see it. People have talked a lot about how the movie's dark. I don't think it's that dark, but maybe I'm dark. So dark doesn't have the same effect on me. On good old JP. I'm like, are you kidding me? All this uh, murder is a reprieve from what's going on in this brain box of mine. <laughs> you should see what it looks like in here. It's like fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre 5. But, um... I... I don't know why they, it's not that dark. I guess because it's, you know, it's superhero adjacent and thus people feel as though like there's something triggered in the back of their mind that they still think that there needs to be like some level of like redemption or that, you know, someone is going to step up and fight this awful supervillain. But it's a, it's called Joker. It's not called Joker and a little bit of Batman. You know what I'm saying? Like this is, it's his origin story. And I, I don't know, I wound up feeling pretty bad for him, but I was thinking about, I was reading some articles about it later on, and they were talking about how Joaquin, will, you know, there's a good chance that he'll, you know, get nominated for an Oscar and maybe win it. I, I can't, no one, I, I haven't seen all the movies yet. I know Adam Driver, who's a very good actor, has done a movie that, that is definitely going to be in heavy contention. I'm sure there's some other performances, but like, you know, fucking Tom Hanks is about to play Mr. Rogers. So, I mean, that's like literally, it, it, if you could like put together an Oscar, it's that's like <laughs> Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers in a Mr. Rogers movie is assembling the Avengers. It's like literally going like, how can we get the strongest super force in the world to save us? Um, so I don't know, maybe that'll be good and, and Tom Hanks will win that because he's like the greatest actor ever. But, um... Yeah, man, I just, you know, I think that Joaquin Phoenix definitely needs to win an Oscar for that. And I was thinking about the Oscars in general, right? And, like, award shows for art is inherently weird anyway, right? Because it's all subjective. There's no stats, what you like, I might not, and vice versa. And granted, there's nothing worse than, like, like a quasi, you know, unsuccessful actor pulling apart sort of the intricacies of award shows, most of which he'll never get nominated for and trust me I think I'm okay with it um, but like you know the Oscars are a very specific thing right and I was thinking about it the Academy Award of the Oscars it's like the Olympics right but the thing is is that the Oscars is for a single sport and that is the decathlon and you might be a great swimmer or you might be a great, I don't know, what else is in the Summer Olympics? I should know this, right? You might be a great sprinter. You might be a great, uh, what else? Is there, there's kind of, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. I'm sure there's like plenty of things. You might be a great boxer. You know, within your discipline, 
you might be a great athlete. You might be the bet. You might be the Michael Phelps. But the reality is, is that if you're not in the decathlon, you aren't even in contention for gold. Josh, what the fuck do you mean by that? Let me tell you what I mean. The decathlon, and I don't know much about it, but I do know it's like an, it's considered like the all around, like it shows someone who is like the most proficient in a litany of, or in a myriad, a litany, a myriad of different sort of athletic forms, right? Like, there's running, there's throwing, there's jumping, there's longer running. Like, it's kind of like the overall athlete test. Whereas everything else is a little bit more specific to that skill set that you have. But the decathlon's looked at as, like, the well-rounded athlete. I remember, you know, you always heard, like, that when Bruce Jenner had won the decathlon in the Olympics, like, you know, he was considered the greatest athlete alive at that time. When you think about the Oscars, it's kind of like you have to check boxes. It's not enough to like give a performance in a brilliant comedy. You know what I mean? Like, and to just be incredibly brilliantly funny for an entire movie. Or to be like, you know, really riveting in an action movie. Or just like deep down depressed, dramatic for an entire movie. I guess you can win in a drama just being totally sort of sullen and down. But for the most part, you got to check the boxes. And let's talk about Joker. And let's start checking boxes. One, physical transformation. Fucking Joaquin lost 50 pounds. He was skin and bones. Boom! The Oscars love that. Then... There was uh, playing someone who's uh, mentally disturbed. Another good one. You know, if there's some sort of, like, uh, disability, if there's um, just kind of some, some impediment, this is, a, this, is, this is highly rewarded. Then there's a certain comedic aspect to it, but overall it's, it's fairly dramatic. There are moments of extreme anger. They love the uh, the Academy Awards. They love a good, like, fiery, explosive bout of anger in a movie. And then you gotta cry. You need. We need the. We need to see the tears. If you don't cry, we're not sure whether we feel good about giving you this award. Sorry, it's just the truth. So in many ways, he like checked all those boxes. And if you think about all the people that have won over the years, like it just seems as though there is a specific skill set that is a prerequisite to win an Oscar. And you might kill it at something else, but if it's not those skill sets, you probably ain't winning. It's just food for thought. <laughs> These are my musings. This is what goes on in that head of mine when I'm thinking it up. Anyway. On today's show, Safi Bacall. Safi Bacall, a brilliant physicist, author, author of a new book called Loon Shots that I thoroughly enjoyed, that we didn't even like totally, we weren't able to really get into it too deeply because I only had 90 minutes for the pod, but I, I, I so enjoyed sitting down with Safi. He couldn't be more gracious and lovely and brilliant, so I would urge you to check out his new book, Loon Shots, and I would urge you to sit back, relax, and enjoy Safi. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Safi, this is great. This is great. Oh, man. How does this sound? Crispy. Oh, a deer, a female deer. Beautiful. Do you, <laughs> do you sing in your off time? No, not even remotely. Or if I, if I do open my voice to sing, my wife and daughter immediately ask me to stop. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's important in a spouse. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> they know your strengths and your weaknesses. Giving you a reality check. Absolutely. So, okay, quick question. Yep. I mean, you're a physicist, right? I mean, come on. Uh, yes. Just want to make sure you are who you say you are. Okay. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> What's Newton's first law? <laughs> For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Safi, you might be right. I don't, I'm not, I don't know the answer. But <laughs> that sounds right. Very well done. You are who you say you are. Okay. Did I pass? I love it. Wow. Am I going to get a gold star on some chart now? God, knowledge is so impressive. Smart people are impressive. Yeah, that's, well, it's, it's knowledge and what you study. I mean, you, you studied a ton and you're, you have skills and talents and physicists are the same. They study from a young age and I think you started really young, isn't that right? I did, yeah. I started when I was like 10. Pushed into it, started, you know, same thing. Well, my dad, my dad, both my parents were scientists, and so... Astrophysicists? Astrophysicists, and so I started when I was young, too. And I know you are you were born in Israel? My mother was born in Israel. By the way, are we... Yeah. We're just chatting. Oh, we? yeah. We're, we're, we've uh, begun. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is <Okay>. happening. <laughs> this is how it works here in Los Angeles. Welcome to LA. Got I it. love it. I love how you're like, is this idiot going to just keep... Are <laughs> yeah, we just chatting? I have no idea what we're doing. Randomly okay. throwing things. <laughs> Why am I here again? I have no idea what I'm... I just wanted to get to know you. Absolutely. I'm not going to even bring up too much. Um, wait, so... and But you're a Jersey boy, right? I was born in New Jersey, yeah. Uh, well, I, sorry, I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in Pasadena. Really? Uh, yeah, my dad was at Caltech. And that's where he brought my mom. He met her on a trip to Israel, and he basically imported her. Um, that's amazing. And uh, now sort of knowing the difference between Jersey and Pasadena, were you like, Pops, what were you doing? Bring us to the Garden State. <laughs> <laughs> no, we grew up in um, uh, a town called Princeton, New Jersey. Mm. And uh, one of the things they say about it is it's a really nice place. And one of the nice things is that it's so close to New Jersey. Mm. It feels like it's a different completely different universe than the rest of New Jersey. It's a sort of isolated little university town bubble. My people are from Jersey too. Oh. North Jersey. Nice. Different bubble. Got it. 
more Sopranos-y bubble. I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm, I'm a Jew from North Jersey. My family was in the Schmata business. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so what can I say? That's yeah. interesting. And it's interesting. That's how so much of Hollywood got started. Jews from New Jersey in the Schmata business. They, it did kind of, right? Yeah, that's right. A little bit. Um, and what was it like? I mean, you talk about how your parents were astrophysicists. Like, what was your household like growing up? Uh, you know, I, sometimes people ask me that, like, it's, it's only in retrospect mm. that it seems like sort of an odd thing, but, you know, it was, you know, I was just, the, it was almost like any other kid. Your dad can't really figure out how to use the VCR and your mom is off talking about some other thing. And you just want, you know, I just wanted my Count Chocolate, you know, Count Chocula cereal. And, um, it was, I think like most suburban childhoods, except, one thing that was, I think, super helpful and very interesting, and I'm probably going to try to recreate with my kids, I have two young kids now, is both my parents instilled a great love of asking questions, mm. of curiosity. It's the name of this podcast. That's, oh, Did you know that? <laughs> that's, no, I was just walking by, stopped, said, oh, I think I recognize that guy. Oh, what am I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should have done more homework. Um yeah, no, they, they instilled the love of asking questions and trying to figure out why. Well, I remember, for example, one time driving down uh, a street with my dad. And when you're driving down the street and you see, and the, the sun is sort of low, and you're looking a little bit into the sunlight, you see this kind of shimmering as if there's a pool. Mm. And it starts in the middle of the street, and then it sort of spreads. And I remember him asking, why do you think that is? Why does it shimmer? And then you drive through it, and there's no water. So... There's always this kind of asking why, and it just gets you really curious. And I've, that ended up being, for me, really important. For me, thinking about how to go through life and when I should make big changes and what really motivates me and what really drives me, it comes back to curiosity, to always asking why. And if I'm really excited about something, if I'm in the right place, if I'm doing something I really care about, I'm always asking why, and I'm always very curious, like, how do I get better at this? Why is this working? And if I'm not doing that, if I'm not asking why, if I'm not curious about whatever I'm doing, mm. it's probably a sign that I've been at that project or at that job too long, and it's time to make a change. And one thing in, in doing my research about you and listening to, to a bunch of the podcasts you've been interviewed on, and something I totally respect, and it's not super different than what I've done where I started out in traditional and sort of branched off into podcasting and all sort of this new media is that it really seems like you, oh, sorry. Uh, you know, it's only my 90th podcast and I didn't have the microphone in my face. It's no big deal. Sophie, I'm sorry I had to see that. Um, <laughs> um, is that you don't, you really don't stick around too long. Like when you're, you're done with something, you're done with it. You're, you're sort of quick to move on sort of no matter. I mean, you talked about like your job at McKinsey and sounded pretty, pretty cushy, pretty nice. <laughs> nice benefits. You have dental at McKinsey. Oh yeah. Vision. Oh yeah. That's nice. Yeah, it was good. But you moved on. You weren't afraid. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it sort of comes back to curiosity, which by the way is the name of your podcast. It is. It it's is. curious. It's curious. That's what it's called. Curious. Uh, all right. <laughs> it's, I just find I, I mean, you're only on earth for not a very long time. So you mm -hmm. might as well be excited about what you're doing. And in the beginning, right, I generally knew it was time to go when I, uh, 
was getting less and less curious about something. So for example, I did start in academic science. I, I don't think I'd set foot off a university until I was maybe 29 or 30. And I was just really curious, like what does the rest of the world do? The 99.9% of the world that's not theoretical physicists and mathematicians, like what do they do during the day? Yeah. <laughs> For me, that was just a big mystery. And I realized that obviously it was those people that made the world go around. All the stuff that we buy, that we eat, comes from those people who happen to not be you know, physicists and mathematicians. So sure. I, was, I was just very curious. And how do they work? And when they get up in the morning, I couldn't even figure out what a consultant was. You know, I, I sort of understood a guy who makes widgets, you know, a, a guy who sells a television. Mm. There's a salesperson. He calls somebody up. He tries to get them to buy it. There's a guy who manufactures a television. He puts some things together, and it's a television. I couldn't for the life of me figure out what a consultant does. I don't think anyone knows, by the way. It's I like would, a producer. They they want it to be vague. I just, I kept asking, you know, you have all these interviews to get in. And I, I was just, I did all those interviews in part because I was curious, like, all right, I don't understand. You know, just walk me through. I would ask, you know, what's your job? And they would, I would hear blah, 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 blah. I was like, I don't get it. Mm. Why are people, like, I don't know anything about business at the time. This was 20 some years ago. Why would people pay a lot of money to have me come into their office place and figure out what to do when I don't know anything about their business. I Walk me through how this works. And then I would hear blah, 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 and I wouldn't understand. I said, okay, let me get a little more specific. You wake up in the morning, alarm bell goes off, you take a shower, you put on your clothes, you get in your car, you drive to work, you go up the elevator, you get into an office, butt in chair, what happens? Mm. Literally the next eight hours, I'm just not following. So I took that job because of curiosity. I just couldn't figure out what they did for a living. And it was, um, it was fun. It was a learning experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about people. I learned about businesses. I learned about what makes a country go around. Economics. I worked in Wall Street. I worked in trading, you know, on trading floors and investment banks. I learned a ton of stuff and it was a lot of fun. And then when the learning curve sort of plateaued, when it kind of flattened out, when I'd sort of gotten the hang of it, then I started thinking about what's next. What else do I want to do? And that's when I made, you know, shifted out of consulting and into starting a company. Growing up, and I'm I'm so sli- sort of jealous of this because I grew up in a household with like a single mom, where in a good way, like good old musical theater and song and dance was revered. There was a high value on this. And so it, it's sort of no surprise that that's sort of the business I got into. And yet, of course, in hindsight, like for most people, I wish there had been just like a little bit more value on academia. <laughs> and so growing up in, in a household where it's full of that, was there pressure? Were you doing flashcards at night? Did your parents make you do extra work? What'd that look like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder how many physicists say... I just wish I had more song and dance musical theater in my life when I was a kid. I don't, I don't know how much it goes the other way around. <laughs> They're wrong. They're wrong. It's not worth the you, thing. You didn't miss out. We it's didn't a miss tough out. life out here, Safi. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think as a kid, you don't really think of it as pressure because you just do My dad had been a tennis coach, for example. Mm. And so I just went into tennis and... It's only much later that I realized that there are families where there's incredible pressure to do you know well on a certain sport. And when you go around, I played in the competitive uh, tennis circuit. And only much later I realized that there are 
parents that really put incredible amount of pressure on their kids. Andre Agassi's dad did that. And actually, I think here in Los Angeles, uh, do you know who the Menendez brothers are? Oh, the murderers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I grew up with Eric and Lyle Menendez, who grew up right around Princeton, New Jersey. Terrifying. And their parents, the dad, I remember, was one. And and so his dad used to drive us to tournaments. My dad used to drive us to tournaments together because we were in the same sort of tennis circuit, tennis year. And um, he was really good. He was kind of a super gifted athlete. He was a soccer player as a young kid and then switched into tennis late and then just became number one. He was a really talented athlete. But his parents were these kind of obsessive, pushing, pushing, pushing parents. Um. But no, my parents were not like that. He, my father encouraged me with tennis and encouraged me with science and mathematics and made things available to me. I just enjoyed it. I just liked problem solving and it was fun for me. So I kept doing it. But if you said, dad, I want to, I'm going to major in poetry, <laughs> what would he have said? <laughs> After kicking me out of the house, you mean? Right. Um, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, it's, you know, he was a really good dad. He, you know, he sadly passed away, but he he was a really terrific father who was very supportive. I think that would have pushed the limits of his patience. It's <laughs> like poetry. That's but, amazing. But I, you know, I think he respected, and both my parents respect hard work and commitment. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm hoping I will be like that with my kids. That it's less about you must be. X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and go to this school or whatever. More about the right character, the right values, and whatever you decide to commit to that you find satisfying, you know, commit to it. What I'm interested in, and this is a, a selfish question on my part, because I, I just had a son who's six months, and so you've got young kids. So, you know, my wife and I, my wife majored, went to the Fashion and Design Institute in downtown LA. So I think we can assume that my kid creative wise is going to just, you know, be well covered in that arena. But from the academic side, I, I think about at times, what, what do I have to offer him in that respect? Or what are the things that I should, you know, kind of um, hold the line on to make sure that he really focuses on? So is there like one or two things that you think about with your kids? It's like, whatever they want to do is fine, but I'm really going to push them to know the value of this specific thing. Well, my wife is a, a biologist. She works at Harvard uh medical, doing lung cancer, manages a lung cancer research lab. And uh, so she got her PhD in biology. I got mine in physics. And so we say we're totally open to whatever our kids want to do. They can get their PhD in any area of biology or <laughs> physics that they want. And we're not going to pressure them. There are lots of choices within those two fields. They can slum it at Yale. Whatever they want, we're going to be very open-minded. It's kind of you. No. <laughs> I think if there's one thing that I think about doing. And I, I'm probably a subscriber to the view that how much parents can do is kind of overrated. Mm. I think kids learn a ton more from other kids and their environment. Um, and as long as you provide a loving, kind of supportive household and you know you, everything is sort of within reasonable reason, you provide reasonable rules, and um, they're going to pick up probably much more from their environment and other kids that they're going to pick up from you so that you can relax, okay. first of all. 
But there, if there's one thing that really resonated for me, and I'm going to be trying to do, my kids are, are uh, four and a half and one and a half, that I'm going to be trying to do is something, it, it comes back to a quote I heard from a guy named Isidore Rabi, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics uh, many years ago. And someone had interviewed him and asked him, what, you know, what does it take? Did your parents do anything special with you, do you that you think helped you? And he said, well, every day when I came home from school, you know, many other parents would ask their kids, you know, what did you learn today? And my mom always asked me, did you ask any good questions today? Mm. And I've always, that's always stayed with me because that's a great way to reinforce curiosity and love of learning. Talking about the questions you ask, not so much what you learned or because Learn what you learn might be a kind of a memorization thing, a repeating thing, a regurgitating thing, which is one of the problems with a lot of education today. It's too much about regurgitation and not enough about how to think critically. Mm. And what matters for succeeding in the world and making important breakthroughs is thinking critically, is asking good questions. So if there's one thing that I, I'm going to try to do, it's when my kid comes home from school, did you ask any good questions today? That's good. I'm going to steal that. Go ahead. I love it. It's your podcast, man. You can <laughs> do whatever you <laughs> Thank want. you. Um, so I got to know, what's it like when people say, where'd you go to college? You could say Harvard. That's nice. <laughs> I dream of that. Uh, I am a huge believer that that is not only so overrated, but it's anti-correlated. That's so Harvard with, of you to say. <laughs> and I, I'm a huge believer in that. And I, you know, I, my wife and I talk about that all the time. I'm a big, big believer in early education, like getting the best possible education or cr create an early childhood environment school for my, my young kids from, you know, when they're below eight years old to instill a love of learning. And it's also like neuroplasticity, like they're the most uh, sort of available to learn it in that sort of window from till eight years old. Yeah, they're the most impressionable for good habits and for bad habits. Mm. If, you, if you can create a love of learning and the ability to ask interesting questions, you can instill that in kids early on so that they really enjoy it, then I think you can sit back. And then it, I don't think it matters very much where you where you go to school, as long if they've got kind of the passion, the commitment, good character, good values, and a love of learning. And I think a lot of that, it can be taught at kind of a basic level, an elementary level, before age 10, before age 11. Then I think to some extent, I could be wrong, it's maybe just my view, your job as a parent is 80, 90% done. Mm. And where they go to school, I see my job as downplaying that because what I hear about from parent friends who have older kids is that the pressure to get into great schools, uh, maybe it comes from some parents, I, you know, not friends of mine or, or, or me or my wife, is much more from their peers. Like, oh, and the people start talking, the kids start talking in high school or whatever, where are you going, where are you going, blah, blah, blah. And that creates this sort of peer anxiety to go to some kind of brand name school. And I see my job is to counteract that, mm. to say, 
it absolutely doesn't matter. And if anything, it can be anti-correlate. Because I know so many people who went to Harvard who have got that sort of brand on their resume and then coast on that in kind of terrible ways and become much less than what they could be because they had that and I think would have done phenomenally better if they didn't have that. In some ways, it's just like, you know, I'm talking with some businesses now and some folks about how to create better and innovate better. And the more money you give a team, the more space you have in the, as a startup or as a large company, often the worse you do, mm. the less creative you are. And sometimes the more constrained you are, the smaller your environment, the more close sort of commitments and friendships you can form and the harder you work and the more satisfied you become. So there's definitely, there's some things that kind of help you about that, you know, going to a brand name school, but I think there's a lot of things that can work the reverse. Well, I think the assumption is, and is that in addition to a great education, what you get inevitably is the Rolodex, right? Is the contacts of people from, you know, a top tier school like that, that will serve you throughout your life because they go on to do big fancy things. And it's good to know people who do big fancy things. You know, I've heard people say that, <laughs> it, you know, it, maybe it works for some people. I don't know that I, I've stayed in touch with, uh, you know, one of my best friends from undergrad who then we roomed together in grad school um, just because we were good friends. I think the education I got was okay. I think there are a lot of other schools you get much better education. I think, like where? My brother went to Oberlin, for example. I think he got a better education than me. Why? Because I, I think Harvard professors are so full of being Harvard professors, mm. they don't spend a lot of time on, well, let's make sure we educate our undergrads well. Whereas uh, friends of mine who went to universities less focused on research and getting grants, the faculty were more engaged in trying to make sure the undergrads had a good learning experience. Mm. So it's not obvious to the best experience I got there from college was from some peers. Um, and that's not really different than I think most colleges. I don't know that college even matters that much. I mean, it's three or four years. You take a ton of stuff, English history, medieval history. You know, you're, you come out of high school. Most kids are just looking to party in this country. It's, yes. di it's different in Europe. And it's, you're just sort of, killing time until, you know, for a lot of kids, they go to law school or med school or whatever. And then life doesn't really begin until your mid-20s anyway. And what you did from 18 to 22, I don't think matters very much. I think the character, the values, how hard you work, the EQ you develop is much more important than anything. I don't remember anything from college. I, I didn't remember anything from college like two days after I graduated from college. Like, I didn't remember any class there. I remember very little material there. How can that be, though? Because you're in the... Si you know, I would believe that if you majored in communications. <laughs> or, like, <laughs> you know, philosophy or something. But, like, we assume, and this is just an outsider's per point of view, that for someone in the sciences or law or something where there's a big barrier of entry, that it's, it's step-based that you have the foundation in high school, then you, it's more is revealed in, in when getting your bachelor's and then you get your doctorate and then you've, you've mastered. But is that, is that really not the case? I think 
you know, it, if you're talking about like sort of technical aspects in a technical field, like whether it's physics or biology or chemistry or engineering, sure, there's a whole bunch of technical, you know, rungs on the ladder that you have to go up to get to be a professional on any one of those. Yeah, like Scientology, there's steps. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait, what town am I in again? Oh, right, it's Los Angeles. Why am I not surprised that that came and out? And then one day they put you in a room and they give you the ultra hidden shit. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Or like, don't worry, it will. We just need a hundred grand. You know what's so funny? This just so much reminds me of a story my mom tells me. You know, I, we're talking about science or physics and then you mentioned science. Yeah, it's just like Scientology. Right? And so my mom who is an astrophysicist at Princeton and works on cosmology, sort of early stage events in the universe, large-scale structure of the universe, galaxies and, and clusters of galaxies and so on, was on a flight, and she loves to tell this story. She, she was on a flight sitting next to somebody, and some woman, older woman asked her, you know, what do you do? And she says, oh, I, I work uh, in cosmology. I'm a cosmologist. And she says, oh, that's, that's terrific. You know, I have some really great beauty tips. Do you I have love some it. cool beauty t- <laughs> And there was like this whole conversation, total disconnect. She thought it was like cosmet. What's the word? Cosmetology? Cosmetology. Cosmetology. <laughs> anyway, so when you said science, when we went from science to Scientology, yeah. I just immediately thought of that story from my mom. I, I lost track of what we were I, talking about. I love that your mom's seatmate thought she probably worked at Sephora. Yeah. <laughs> Cosmo, she's like, it, actually, my cosmologist, not, not quite the same as cosmetologist. <laughs> you, were, you were saying how there's rungs to... Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. You were asking about, you know, how could you be... Absolutely. If you're going to be a professional in any of these fields, I'm not referring to Scientology, <laughs> physics or... Or, or chemistry or engineering or any one of these more technical fields. So you have to get some basic stuff. You have to learn a certain level of mathematics. You have to learn certain ways to apply uh, physical principles and what's been done. And it is actually a fair amount of training. But you can learn that anywhere. And generally speaking, I, I'm not sure the teachers, for example, at Harvard, who are completely focused on doing original research and grants, and that's how the system works. That's what they're rewarded for and promoted for and tenured for. Mm. I'm not sure they do a better job of helping you up that ladder than any of, you know, 500 other universities, especially, and I have, you know, many ex-physics friends who teach at those universities, where they're less focused on spending all their time on writing grant proposals and going to conferences and more focused, like, how do I explain this kind of complicated stuff in a more simple way that helps people up that ladder. Mm. So I would say they probably do a less good job of that going up the ladder, the technical ladder, at the brand name research universities than they do at less fancy brand name universities. It's funny you say that too about how, you know, for most of us at that age when we would be in college, we're sort of young and, and perhaps our priorities aren't, you know, purely based on furthering our academic career. And, and like, I have a buddy who in his forties has now gone back to law school because he sort of had a big life change and got sober and all these, and he's killing it. And, and I remember asking him and he's got a full-time job and a kid and a life and a wife. And I said, what's it like being back at law school after a 20 year gap? And he said, Josh, it's so manageable. He's like, because I want to be there. So the workload is manageable. I do it and I get pretty good grades. And it's just kind of very 
sort of A plus B equals C. It's, 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 it's very simple. And yet when I was a kid and I wanted to drink and I was less accountable, it seemed, the workload seemed impossible. Yeah, I'm not, you know, there's a lot of people who have thought about higher education a ton more than I have. And uh, it just doesn't seem well designed because like, I, I don't know who remembers the stuff they took in classes. We taught, there are these sort of technical things you have to go up and you can do that in lots of different ways. I mean, most of the time, you know, in physics, you're, you're just solving problems. There's a textbook, you go to the you know, the end of each chapter and their problems. And you learn by solving problems. Mm. You don't learn by a lecture. You, know, you, you rarely learn by reading. You learn by, here's a problem, try to crack it. And in the, all the wrong turns that you take, you learn a bunch of stuff. And it's just actually like starting a business. You learn and grow as a leader by all the mistakes you made, not by your successes. And that's the same thing in science. You learn by the mistakes you make, not by your successes. So the... You know, I remember some of the kind of fun courses I took, but like that stuff fades really quickly. So what does that do for an 18 to 22 year old? I'm not sure that does anything for an 18. So there, it feels to me like the world has changed. The 21st century world is a very different world than the 20th, which in turn was very different than 19th. And may, the systems that we have date back to the 17th century for higher education. So maybe it's time to rethink that. Maybe it's time, you know, kids... What we have today, the society that we have today, the ability to learn that we have today with the online, with the MOOCs, with the incredible teachers, totally focused on how to help people understand complex concepts and get them up those ladders in different fields quickly, all available online, much of it for free. Does it? Why do we have this incredibly expensive system which is mostly about brand, as far as I can tell. Mm. Like, you know, your question to me about that, the name of this, you know, a fancy brand elite school, it's like a pair of jeans. How different are jeans? You know, one has a blank brand and one has an, I actually don't know clothing very well. <laughs> so there's some fancy jean brand and there's some less fancy jean brand and one's probably cost 5X of the other. And are they really that different? Only if they're Kanye's brand. Have you seen his pants? <laughs> I must have missed that. They have patches over the knees. Really? We don't have to talk about it now. But okay. it's it's like that great quote in Good Will Hunting, right? Where where Matt Damon says to the guy from Harvard who's just sort of like they've just gotten into a a, a fight and he says, you know, the one thing you're gonna learn is is that you got your education for what you could have spent a dollar twenty five on in late charges at the library. Exactly. Reading, getting curious, thinking critically. Those are the things that are important. Finding more Matt Damons. Mm. I mean, the Matt Damon character, not the actual Matt Damon. Finding Matt Damon-like savants who are out there, whether they're in Africa, whether they're in poorer communities, wherever. That's what we want to be doing in the 21st century. Not really some kind of weird elite competition for who can write the biggest check and then get the biggest brand and those kids just get drunk anyway and then don't remember anything. After. That, just, that just seems like a very old and not very useful system if we want to build a better society. So this is a good sort of transition into your new book, Loon Shots. And sort of what I respected so much about it was, to your point, of the revisionist history of these guys like Steve Jobs and that, you know, we have such idolatry for people like this because all we see is the result. 
And we so rarely go back and look at the, the, the process that it took for them to get there and how often it's met with so many moments of like anguish and utter failure and just like, and if they had stopped there, they never would have become these, these people that we now, you know, become household names. So, well, you know, you obviously have a really interesting sort of insight into, into the nature of that. Will you sort of speak to that? Yeah, I think that that was one of the most fun things for me about doing the research for this book because I, you know, I'd been in a, uh, you know, had this blinkered existence where you're running a company or a public company, and I did that for 13 years, and mostly you're putting out fires and you're thinking about strategy, or most of the time, you, you know, you're answering phone calls and doing meetings and trying to figure out what's next and dealing with people issues, and I I had very little time for reading, mm. very little time. Sadly, for reading, and in retrospect, if I had to do it over again, the one thing that I would change is that I would take a week or two weeks during the year and just read much more widely because you get so many interesting, useful ideas. When you peel back the onion, when you really look beyond the 280 character simple tweet about this thing or Wikipedia entry about that thing, at what really happened? And there are so many interesting stories. The revisionist histories are, tend to be really superficial, as you mentioned, uh, whether it's Steve Jobs was this great hero or we won World War II because of this dramatic battle. And the real stories, the real histories, not the papered over revisionist histories, are so much more rich, so much more fascinating, and so much more helpful as you go about your life that's what was the most fun and surprising. And that's why I ended up almost two or three years in a cave, just going into archive materials and reading uh, primary sources wherever I could and doing interviews wherever I could because I just kept finding so many of the st things that I grew up being told were not really what happened. And those underlying histories were just so much more interesting. Like, why did... What was behind the rise of the British Empire and the fall of the Qing Dynasty or the Chinese Empire? Why did you know, so much of moderni modernity and, and, and the modern science and industrial stuff take place in Western Europe when China and India were so dominant in the world, not for 50 years or 100 years, but for 1,000 years, from the middle of the first millennium to the middle of the second millennium, they completely led the world in trade and GDP. Well over half the world's GDP was China and India when England was, you know, barely a percent, was kind of a backwater. All of, none of the nation states in Western Europe. This is a little bit of a digression, but... I love it. It's an example of the revisionist history. There's so much revisionist history of why England and why Western Europe, and so much of that is just completely wrong. Western Europe was kind of this backwater for about a thousand years. China and India were leading the world in early science, early technology, early organizing, incredible discoveries, paper and printing. It didn't appear in Western Europe and, you know, with Gutenberg, it appeared in China a thousand years earlier. Mm. The most widely, you know, modern medical system. Well, the most widely used medical textbook in Europe, Western Europe, for 700 years was by Ibn Sina, an Islamic scholar. That was the gold standard. That was absolutely the top 
scholarly work on medicine, 700, imagine a textbook being used for seven years. That's already being pushed. 70 years would never happen. Mm. But for 700 years, that was the most widely used textbook. So why Western Europe? Why England? Or, you know, why, do, why does the world, why did the world come to speak English? And so there's so much revisionist history about that stuff. It was so much fun for me to go back and try to understand what was really happening, what was the actual history, whether it was the Steve Jobs story or the rise and fall of Pan Am or how the Allies won World War II. You really have to go deep past that kind of superficial narrative. And only when you keep pulling, pulling, pulling on a thread, eventually you got something and there's kind of a gold nugget there with an insight that's actually really powerful. And so that's why I enjoyed doing it. Will you give just sort of like the highlights of the Steve Jobs story in the respect of like the Lisa and the Macintosh and sort of then uh, inevitably when he was pushed out of the company and came back in? Because I think that's really interesting to your point. Sure. So whenever you organize people into a team or a group or any kind of organization, you're creating a system, groups of people that interact and in any kind of system, you can exist in a phase, in a, in a particular phase or a particular state. Like in a glass of water, you can be a liquid or you can be completely rigid in a solid. In one case, you can stick your finger in and swish it around. In the other case, your finger won't go in at all and it shatters. But they're exactly the same molecules. This sounds a little crazy, but yeah. I'm getting to Steve Jobs. Phase transitions, I'm here. I love it. All right. So whenever you bring people together, just like in a glass of water, you can bring them together into one or two phases. They'll arrange into one or two phases. And it has nothing to do with whether there's a CEO there telling you to be one way or the other. So for example, when it's 33 Fahrenheit and molecules are just sloshing around, swimming around, there's no CEO molecule that says, okay, it's 33, everybody just run around and be loosey-goosey. Wait a minute. It just dropped below 32. It's now 31. Everybody line up and be rigid. Mm. There's no bullhorn. There's no director. There's no CEO. They just do it. And that's something called emergence or emergent order. It just appears. And the same is true with teams and companies. So to get to the Steve Jobs story, the point is that when you create teams or companies, they can be in one of, they can, they will organize, no matter what a leader or CEO or whatever says, they will organize into one of two phases. In one case, they embrace wild new ideas. It's more like that loosey-goosey Startup slosher. mentality. Exactly. Everybody rolls up their... It's, it sounds like sort of an, an analogy or a metaphor, but you can actually work out the mathematics of the incentives and you see that there are these two phases and a sudden switch between them, where in one case, they embrace wild new ideas and when something stumbles, whether it's you know, a small biotech company developing a cancer drug or a small production shop with a, you know, a crazy movie called Juno or My Big Fat Greek Wedding and nobody thinks it'll work. Mm. All the big studios turn it down. But everybody rolls up its, their sleeves and they, you know, the inevitable stumbles, they fix it and it becomes a beautiful product. The other phase is like a big movie studio or a big pharmaceutical company. You can work on big franchises, the next Avengers or the next Staten Drug. And there you need things done a certain way, but at big scale and with big budgets usually and with high accuracy and with a lot of people. 
it isn't that one of them is good or bad or is good or bad. You need both. Mm. In in the film industry, for example, you need the small production shops coming up with the crazy new ideas, the slumdog millionaires, the whatever, the, the things that people say will never work and then do because otherwise the industry will get stale. But you also need the big studios doing the next Transformers or the next Batman because people will pay for that. And the revenue that comes in funds all those crazy ideas, most of which fail. So you need, you absolutely need to have both. Same inside a company. You need the artists working on the crazy new ideas, but you need the soldiers turning those into products you deliver on time, on budget, on spec. So back to Steve Jobs. The myth of Steve Jobs was he was this crazy artist and that's why Apple succeeded because he was this visionary artistic guy. And that's exactly the opposite of what happened. This myth of this great leader is a Moses who stands on the mountain, who raises his or her staff and anoints the chosen project, the chosen loon shot, the crazy idea like the iPod or something that no one says will work and then it works, is just a myth. So when Steve Jobs led like, and this goes back to kind of revisionist history and why it's so interesting to tease out these histories. When Steve Jobs led like that at his first stint at Apple, when he was in his 20s, when he, not long after he started the company with Steve Wozniak, developed the Apple II, which became one of, one of the, the very good early personal computers. Well, they were soon surpassed. There were a lot of other, Commodore, TRS-80, and eventually the IBM PC. And so they needed to figure out what's next as a company. Otherwise, they were going to head downhill fast. And so there was the Apple III project, which was given to Steve Jobs, and he kind of didn't do a very good job on that. And then there was the Lisa project and the next generation didn't do a very good job on that. So to sort of find him something to do, there was this project in the corner called the Macintosh Project. So they gave that to him. And so then he got on top of his mountain. He kicked off the guy who had been who created the project, took it over, and he said, we're the true artists. We are the innovators. We're the, we're the pirates. And you guys are just the regular soldiers, the army, whatever. And that was a disaster. So he created so much, he called them the bozos, the people who were working on the next generation. Well, Wozniak actually was working on the Apple III left. He was doing some really innovative stuff for that, and he left the company. There was so much hostility that people on that franchise side, the Apple III and the Lisa and so on, they, took, they got buttons with a picture of Bozo the Clown and a red circle and a sash saying, we're not bozos. Mm. Of course, they were bringing in 90, 95% of the revenue of the company, right? And so the people who bring in the money tend to really resent the people who are just sitting there happily spending the money on crazy new stuff that makes them happy. It's inevitable. It's always there. You just have to manage that. It's not that you'll never be there. So Jobs did exactly the wrong thing. He exacerbated those conflicts. It was so much hostility there that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ the demilitarized zone, and people on both sides started leaving. Because when you have that much hostility, it's not fun for anybody on any side. And so when the, app, the Macintosh launched, it was a flop. It was great publicity, but the machine was underpowered, it was too slow, it overheated, it didn't have enough good storage, so the sales tanked. And they didn't have a good franchise product ready, so that was starting to tank, and the company was headed for bankruptcy. And the board sort of justifiably asked Jobs to leave. And he kept doing that mistake at his next company called Next. And with Pixar, actually, when he bought it, he bought it for the personal computer because he wanted to show his old bosses at Apple, the old board at Apple, his old people 
at Apple that he could build a bigger, faster computer. And they had something called the PIC, the Pixar Imaging Computer, which was a bigger, faster computer for graphics. Um, and that was kind of a disaster. That computer project went nowhere. But fast forward 12 years after he left Apple and he came back, first thing he did is he appointed a kind of the ultimate artist or designer named Johnny Ive. Right. So if anyone who's got an Apple product in their pocket or purse or on their wrists, it was probably designed from him and his group. And then one of the next things he did immediately is brought in a guy named Tim Cook, who was uh, had been head of operations at Comp Compaq, a computer company before that. And there he was known as the Attila the Hun of Inventory. So if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I don't know it. Right. And what he did, he didn't lead like a Moses and the, only the artists are great and everything else sucks. He led much more like a careful gardener. He managed the balance between those artists and soldiers because great ideas and innovations, it never, the problem with innovating well or coming up with new stuff is never in the supply of new ideas. If we take, you know, the, the 20 people in this office and put them in a room for two hours, we can come up with 200 ideas. It's never in the supply of new ideas. The problem, the failure is always in the transfer between these two groups, between the artists and the soldiers who don't like each other. And that's okay. That's normal. The creatives and the soldiers speak different languages. They value, one values, you know, everything being on time, on budget, on spec. And it's important that they do that mm. because if you want to succeed as a business, you need that. If you're, cut, you're not delivering stuff on time to your budget, uh, on time to your customers, when you say you will and how you say you will at the price you say you will, you won't have a business. Right. On the other hand, if that's the only thing you do and you don't create new stuff and stay ahead of your competitors, you also won't have a business. So the failure point is in getting these two groups to work together well. And they, they how will, do you do it? And they will never like each other. And that's okay. It's just about managing that conflict. And that's why a truly good leader, a truly gifted leader, which is what Jobs became the second time around, doesn't manage like this myth of a Moses on the top of the mountain. He or she manages much more like a careful gardener than a Moses. They make sure the ideas, the baby stage ideas that are coming out of the art, artist group don't go out too late, don't go out too early, you know, where they'll be quashed. So he manages to transfer the dynamics between these two groups because there'll always be resistance. You know, the soldiers who are working on getting stuff to customers on time and so on, they're, you know, let's say they're paid on commission. Why should they take two days out of their busy week, not sell stuff, not talk to customers, not earn commission, to try to understand some crazy new thing that these crazy artists are talking about and doesn't make any sense to them and it's not familiar and it's uncomfortable and I have to keep going back. And then if they put it in front of one of their customers, it'll probably blow up and it won't work very well and their customers will be pissed off. And those are their friends that they're going out of beer you know, with and they depend on, they, their friends depend on them, their, their customers depend on them, they enjoy, this is how they make their money. Mm. So it's that transfer. So the really good leaders, their number one priority is or should be managing the trend. You want to get the best possible people you can to run these groups. And then your job is to manage the transfer between those two, because that's where things fail. And that's what Jobs got very good at the second time around. And when he was in the last year or two of his life, he told one of his biographers, one of his biographers asked him, 
what do you think is your greatest innovation? And he was expecting to hear, you know, the iPod, the iPad, or whatever, the iPhone. The I, iPod Nano, a personal favorite. Okay, Sorry. there you go, absolutely. And he said, you know, I think my greatest innovation was in the organization, mm. the organization I designed. Now, I've been dying to ask you this, because I, I, I love that part of the book, and thinking about Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. And so I'm dying to know what you think of Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Because he sort of represents like he's very much the Johnny Ive, probably from an outsider perspective, much less the Tim Cook. Is he suffering from that? Like, does he just need a fucking great Tim Cook? (laughs) Seems like he does. Well, I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge. I don't, you know, I'm not in there talking to folks. And so it's a little hard to say from the outside, but from the outside, he certainly seems like the absolute classic example of a Moses Mm. who's leading from the top of the mountain, announcing what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And it looks from the outside, again, I don't have any inside knowledge. From the outside, it's suffering all the same classic symptoms of people who have led that way. You get burnout, you have missed deadlines, you have all sorts of crazy stuff because it's just not sustainable. So some of the stories I tell in the book, some of the research that I did are just such classic examples of leaders like that. Probably the best example might have been Edwin Land, who started and ran Polaroid, which he did a great job because he was a genius level inventor. Mm. Land, several of his inventions under almost any, I think, fair assessment would have earned a Nobel Prize. And those came almost directly from him and his group. He was also a very good manager of scientists. And he built a terrific company. He was Jobs' role model, in part because he combined science and art or an aesthetic appreciation. Um, And so Jobs often talked about him as a role model. And he led like this Moses. He fell in love with innovation for the sake of innovation. And sometimes that's a good thing. Yeah, we want to push, you know, encourage people to create new stuff. But just to do new stuff and spend a billion dollars on a new product because it's innovative, sometimes that works. And very often, if there's no market there, it fails. And so Polaroid was an example of that. And I talk about the Polavision thing where the wheel and that cycle of innovate, you know, you do a product and innovate and make it bigger, faster, better, and then do it again and make it bigger, faster, better. And then one, you turn, if you keep doing that wheel, if you keep turning that wheel with just making the product bigger, faster, better, you'll turn it one too many times. And that's what happened to Polaroid. That's what happens when you have a Moses on the top who just loves cool new products and cool new innovation and isn't quite able like Jobs did it his second time around to step back and be a careful gardener. It's interesting because in in my world, and, and you see it especially in television, is that you'll have a really brilliant writer. And television, for the most part, it's a, it's a writer's medium, whereas for movies, it's directors and they have the last say. But the writer's there because they've had to, first of all, think through the entire season and quite possibly 10 seasons. And usually you have visiting directors who are coming sort of in and out. And what's really interesting is you'll have these guys that are very talented. And then best case scenario is they're sort of upgraded to the showrunner position. And then they are a manager of people. 
and it's part of the organization. And now they're looking over writers and directors, but they're also looking over editors and casting. And now it's become sort of, you know, they have to be the conductor to the orchestra instead of like the soloist violinist. And some of them break because they're not built for that. In fact, most writers, you know, especially in showbiz, are like really good at being quiet, working on their laptop. And all of a sudden when they have to articulate something to like a bozo actor like me, who I'm like, I don't get it. What do you need? Like, it's very interesting to see. And some guys really sort of rise to the occasion, like my buddy Dan Fogelman, who wrote the show, This Is Us, and so many other huge, like, he's having such a moment. But the one thing I think I revered about him above his, you know, incredible talent as a writer is he's a mensch. He's a good dude. It's his ability in which to organize people, to inspire those to want to work hard for him and also like pick talented people other than myself. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken with great humility. Um, and I think we have a mutual connection that we were talking before. My friend Danny Nimit, Collins. Yeah, my friend Nimit Mankad uh, knows him well and has worked with him on a, a bunch of projects. I don't remember which ones, but um, and uh, you were in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, Nimit has been working with me on turning Loon Shots into a docu-series as well. And so that's how w one of the connections. And I, I'd heard him say very similar things about Fogelman over the years. Yeah, he's, he's just the truth. But you, you're absolutely right. The, those, the skill of being an original inventor and the skill of being a great manager of people who can inspire both sides, not just the creative side, but also the operational side, are two completely independent skills. Because you sometimes, very rarely, someone could be good at both. Generally speaking, they're totally independent. Someone could be a terrific inventor and not very good at managing people. There are two kinds of men. One is managing your own people, managing the other creatives. The other is managing the people who have to who are the soldiers, who get stuff done on time, on budget, on spec. Mm. Those are people who are not like you. So if you grow up, let's say, in my field in science, there are some good biologists, and they're good chemists, and they're good physicians. And sometimes they can rise to be good managers of other biologists or other physicians. But if you want to create a drug, which is sort of like a movie, it's going to be a five-year, ten-year project, uh, it could cost a billion dollars, not only do you have to get the basic science right and the basic clinical trials right, but you have to get all the regulatory stuff, the pre-launch, the marketing, the operations, the managing, you know, to run a large trial, like shoot a large movie. You, you have to be in 300 hospitals, let's say, and manage trials with thousands of patients and all the documentation staff and collection and database associated with that. That's totally different than pure creative science. So one level is being kind of a good individual contributor. The second level is being a manager of people like you. A third level, which is maybe the hardest, is to be a good manager of people who are completely different than you, people who are totally the opposite side. And so one example is you come from the creative side, managing the pure operation side. The other example, which happens more frequently and is very difficult, let's say a research companies, having someone who comes up the operations side, a soldier, be a good manager of creatives. Usually that doesn't work very well. Mm. You know, like at large pharma companies, you know, one guy, you know, there was one guy who had managed the Heinz ketchup 
it's it's hard as a biologist or chemist to get excited about somebody who was at you know the Heinz ketchup company and before that he was at Boston Chicken and now he's going to be talking about your experiments about like that just doesn't that's amazing be like sorry this ain't french fries boss yeah so it's it's very difficult to come the other way and that's why it's that third leap mm. you know if, you know going not just managing your own kind like a writer managing a writer's room but actually a writer running the whole operation of getting a show produced on time, on budget, negotiating deals is just totally different. So yeah. someone who can do both is very rare. And to your point with our, with Dan Fogelman and, and the revisionist history nature of it, and he would he would be the first to tell you, like I was on a TV show of his that he created that made it a season. And unfortunately, that's as far as we went, Safi. <laughs> like, <laughs> we were very canceled. And there were like a couple of those things. And yet, you know, it Dan didn't allow that to stop him from continuing to create and learning from these past experiences of where he could, you know, make subtle changes. And then inevitably you have something like this is us and no one will ever talk about the show grandfathered. I'm sure that's the first time you're hearing of it. <laughs> no one will talk about that one, you know, because he had this major win and that sort of is what will do the speaking for his legacy. Um, so who's, who, uh, in your opinion, when you look at CEOs currently from like the Reed Hastings to the Bezoses, like who do you think is, is who do you think is doing it right? Well, you know, I think in, in, people talk about Amazon. I don't have any firsthand knowledge inside there. And obviously if you look at what they are delivering, which is that they are delivering stuff, <laughs> not only on time, but like faster than you could ever have imagined. Um, but they're also coming up with crazy new ideas and making them succeed. You know, that, that of course is imp impressive. And one of the key things there that you, you mentioned with uh, your show or your, your, your film is learning, and this is probably the number one challenge. Even when I, you know, I'm meeting with friends at, companies that are supposedly famous for innovation like Google and Google X and their, their moonshot factory, the number one thing they struggle with is failure. How to get people in large teams and large organizations comfortable enough with taking the risks, knowing that they might fail. Mm. Because failure has a bad stench. It doesn't matter how many roses you put around it. There's still some stench. But if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. If you're not failing, some other competitor will have tried that risky thing and succeeded, and then that'll just be a bullet heading to your head, and it's just a matter of time. So if you're not failing, there's a bullet with your name coming at your head. And I think one of the things that Bezos has done well is try to make it okay to fail by highlighting, and he has a big platform, and so he's talks about his failures and how, for example, the Amazon Fire phone, if you remember that thing, was a spectacular failure. Yeah. But the people who worked on that project, so they say, and I'm certainly people who I know that visit Amazon get told this story, and I'm assuming there's some truth to the story. The pe people there got promoted and got rewarded in some cases because that it was a good failure in the sense that it was an intelligent risk well taken. You don't want to reward stupid failures like, I think I'm going to fly if I jump off this building. You, you know, you, you know, that was a stupid failure. You don't mm. get rewarded for that. 
But if you take an intelligent risk, like in drug discovery, you, you never can know for certain what will happen when you put a drug out of the lab and into the human body. But if you've done the work and you do a good job operationally and it doesn't work out, you can't be penalizing people constantly for that. Otherwise, they'll never try anything new. And I think one of the things that Bezos has done well is talk about the need to fail, the need to fail big, need to fail smart in the sense that you learn from the failure. And in the case of the Fire Phone at Amazon, the learnings they got from that led them to Alexa. And so that was a big success. Now, in your show, was it grandfathered? Yes. The question is, did Fogelman learn something that helped them succeed later? Don't cast Josh Peck anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Probably not where I was going with that question. Um, I'm so fascinated because, like, I, I, um, I'm, I'm sure you know Dr. Keith Black. Um, from Cedars, who's like the chairman of neurosurgery there. And I read his book, which made me fascinated with cancer research. And and I'm just trying to know, what's it like working in cancer research? Because you really can't say, guys, calm down. We're not curing cancer here. Because you are. <laughs> like, it's God's work. Um, you know, it is. Uh, it's an interesting. Literally this morning, I was talking with a group of, uh, I'm going to be meeting with a group of uh, hospital CEOs who are trying to, figure out how to survive as a hospital in the 21st century. So how can they balance the core job they need to do of saving lives with also coming up with radically new models that could work? And there is a challenge in working on that and that what you're doing is you can't drop the ball because there are lives that depend on you doing your job well. It's not just I'll make more money or won't make as much money. It's literally lives so there's a challenge in that. But the flip side is it's enormously simplifying and it's enormously, it's an enormous advantage because I would get up every morning, you know, every morning. And when I would go into work, I would know that there's a good, ch there's a chance if I do my job well, if I'm smart enough and work hard enough and bring enough good people in and get stuff out of their way and make, help them become the best that they, they could be at their jobs, that something we do might give people and families more time on earth with their loved ones. Mm -hmm. You know, I lost my father about 15 years ago and ever since, and it was to cancer, and that, that's true of many people because it's, it's the number one or two depending on what age group, uh, killer in the in the in the U.S. or in the world, a heart disease and cancer, trading off all the time, and that's just an enormously motivating and clarifying force. So you think about what's the right thing to do that could get your project or your drug to that point where you're giving families more time on Earth with their loved ones. And because of that, on the one hand, it's sort of a challenge because it's a lot of, um, you can't screw up, you don't want to screw up. On the other hand, it's a lot easier to motivate people. We were enormously lucky and fortunate in attracting terrific people and building a group that was incredibly motivated because of that mission. And so when you have that mission, that's an advantage. And it's a lot easier to have that mission when your job is working in saving lives and coming up with new treatments. Yeah. It's actually, although it's, as you say, a little more challenging, 
on the one hand, that's a big benefit. It's sometimes can be a little harder to find that motivation if you're like, you know, just moving money around. If you're, you know, right. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pick on any particular industry. Um, it, yeah, it's so, it's it's so interesting that you know, especially in this day and age, that there's so many different. Um, you know, I, I feel like we're all, especially in the Instagram culture, we're trying to find meaning in what we do. And yet something like that and, you know, cancer research especially, like, I, I'm, I'm dying to do this because I hate conspiracy theories. And I especially hate the people who like conspiracy theories because they're always like, bro, check out this video on YouTube, 9-11 inside job. And I'm like, if it's on YouTube... We've failed. <laughs> if if the secret government can't get a video <laughs> that that is pushing your point off of YouTube, something really bad is going on here. But like, can we debunk this whole? Well, you know, there's there's a lot of cures for cancer that they don't put on the market because they want to keep people sick because there's no money in curing. Like, have you ever heard this? This is ridiculous. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just complete garbage. And it's, <laughs> it's like you know the Earth is flat, and we've been visited by you know all this sort of stuff. Also, that the Earth isn't flat, by the way. Just Good to see, know. Yeah. Does that hurt you, Safi, as an educated man, to see how dumb people can be? No, <laughs> it yeah. must be because I'm reasonable. I'm quasi intelligent. I have a podcast, so I'm doing fine. But <laughs> it kills me. <laughs> um, I, you know, people, I. I don't know why people say it. people say a lot of stuff on 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 the interwebs. Is that what they call them nowadays? Sure, the interwebs. Yeah, no people. Obviously, as you know, people say a lot of stuff. People like conspiracies for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know what why it's so satisfying to people to have these things, but uh, maybe they want to have. I there is something that people who are going through a loss. It's an incredibly painful thing, and I've mm -hmm. been through that, and I've you know many friends who have been through that. You want to blame somebody because you don't want to hear there is no answer and there's nothing we can do. Mm. You, you're angry. You're upset. You're, you're angry at the world because it's a terrible loss. It's like having a piece of your heart just ripped out and that hole is, is there forever. And you want to – you're angry and you're upset and you're, you want – it's helpful to have somewhere to direct your anger. So um, it is certainly not the case. It, you, you know, small companies, mid-sized companies, researchers, biologists, chemists, of course we're trying to, you know, we have a jet, we're trying to make stuff work. The thing with cancer, which makes it kind of almost absurd for anyone who works in the field, it knows that the cancer is 200 and plus diseases. Right. You know, the cancer of the breast is completely different. There are actually many different kinds of breast cancer, cancer of the colon, cancer of the brain, cancer of the liver, they're completely different diseases with completely different things breaking down inside cells. Something that works phenomenally well in one is completely irrelevant in the other and vice versa. So there is no such thing as a, a quote, cure for cancer because it's, it's like a cure for disease. There's no cure for disease because, you know, Alzheimer's is totally different than autoimmune indications is totally different than liver cirrhosis. Mm. Uh, so cancer is this whole collection of different stuff. And the reason it's taken so long is because it's such an enormous, complex disease that generally speaking, we only see when it's incredibly advanced. 
We only see when so many things have broken down inside a cell that it's incredibly hard to try to put all the pieces back together. And that's why it takes so long. All that being said, we have made some amazing progress. We have cured a couple of cancers. And physicians and scientists are very, very uh, sensitive and reluctant to use that word cure because it has such emotional resonance. And there was also you know, a lot of overhype about that 30, 40 years ago. And then people, pendulum swung back. We need to be a little more careful. But the reality is we have essentially cured mm. of the several hundred types of cancers, a small number, certain childhood leukemias that used to be you know, 95, 99% fatal are now 80, 90% of kids survive. Um, and we're getting better and better, even in the last 10 years with all sorts of really important, interesting advances in cancer where it took you know, a couple decades for some of the biotechnology benefits to really materialize because they're so, really they're difficult. They're really difficult scientific problems and the translation from the lab to human patient is just so much more complicated than anybody had imagined 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but now some of those things are starting to pay off. Like when I first started working in uh, developing a drug for metast- for melanoma, for skin cancer, for metastatic skin cancer, I remember one guy getting up and giving a presentation and saying, uh, after another failed trial and saying, we have had 50 years of failure. Over and over, we would get excited about making a difference in melanoma. Over and over, we'd publish. I'd be standing up here, and he was, you know, in his late 60s. He said, over and over, I've been coming to the same kind of meeting with this, all of you guys, and we all know we've been failing for 50 years. And actually, I think it's an incredible credit that the, the, the physicians and researchers keep going. Mm. And this is true big companies, small companies, they keep going in the face of all these failures. And guess what? 10 years ago, something worked. This idea of like stimulating the immune system to fight tumors, like your immune system fights colds and get them out of your body. Well, in melanoma, it worked. It didn't work in a whole bunch of other cancers, but it did work in melanoma. And melanoma, you know, the next time this guy got up, it was like, well, on year 51, we something worked. We got it. It worked. And now 50% of patients with melanoma, or roughly speaking, respond. Whereas before, you know, it would be less than 5% respond. Now, it doesn't mean we've cured melanoma. It just means it's a big first step up that inevitable ladder towards getting towards a cure. And is it a major... I read that book... Um, the Emperor of All Maladies, yeah. which is sort of like the the great history book of cancer, and and what was so surprising to me and is um, a big I think misconception is whenever you hear like in some big health documentary they'll be like because of environmental threats or changes in people's diet cancer has ridden, risen this much over the last hundred years and it's like actually no cancer has been killing us since the beginning of time in great numbers it's like cancer has been killing us it's been around forever right like Absolutely. I mean, the, the huge progress we made is in infectious disease over the last hundred years, because before vaccines, you know, we, we lost millions of people 
in, in World War around the time of World War One to this great influenza epidemic, and it sort of got buried a little bit in history. But infectious disease would wipe out giant fractions of the population before we had vaccines, and therefore mortality, age-related mor- the mortality rates from cancer arguably were lower 100 years ago, but that's because people were dying from infectious disease and untreatable heart conditions. Right. Now that the vac- especially vaccines and certain, you know, antibiotics and anti-infectives have helped get that under control and various heart meds and heart treatments have helped bring down deaths from heart disease by almost 50%. Now we're seeing a slightly higher percentage maybe, but not but a lot of that is driven because we've made great progress on some of these other diseases, yeah. not because the incidence of cancer, the natural rates have changed. People ain't dying from typhoid as much. Exactly. Yeah, right? <laughs> or the bubonic plague yeah. or influenza. We just, people don't quite realize Black how much, death. Exa- Wasn't that a thing? I think that was a the thing. The black yes. plague? That was, that was a thing. Ooh. Not good. Sounds awful. Yeah, no, it wasn't good. My son just got three shots the other day right. for his vaccines. Yeah, we're a pro-vaccination podcast. You heard it here first. <laughs> but it's so it's so sad huh? when your kids have to get the shots. My son looked at me like, how could you let this happen? Oh, man, yeah. My, my wife and I, did. we did this wonderful thing. It was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. When um, our first kid was born, mm. we both took leaves, like a six-month leave, and we got an Airbnb in Sausalito. And uh, we just checked out of the world and just enjoyed this little baby and this new life. And it was the most amazing uh, experience and lived in kind of the hills uh, up in southern Marin. And it was so beautiful. But I remember taking our daughter in at around month three yeah. for the vaccines. And oh, my God. God, did she scream and yell. It was unbelievable. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. That's cool. So you spent six months just with your wife and your daughter. Yeah, just watching her grow. Just like, yeah, like, uh, it's probably like, uh, you may know this, but I I would be able to go home and I I could just watch her. And even with with the new one, it doesn't get old. I just, just, I could do nothing, just watch them for an hour. It's just incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is my last question that I ask everyone on the podcast. What are your one or two Safi Bacall commandments, truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else? Well, there's, um, I often get asked because I you know, worked on this nurturing crazy ideas and how to turn them into big things and big breakthroughs. How do you persist? Because there there's so many failures and so many stumbles along the way. If you're working on something really important, because if if you do this whole fail fast and pivot stuff, you're probably not working on something important. If it's really easy, then lots of people could do it and lots of people probably have done it. So how do you persist? And there's one line that stayed with me for probably 15 years. And that came from a guy that I worked with named Judah Folkman. And Judah was a physician. He was chief of surgery for many years at Children's Hospital in Boston. And uh, as a young guy, Judah came up with a new idea for treating cancer. And at the time, the only way to treat cancer was with chemotherapy, which is basically poison. You mm. just flood your body with poison. 
or radiation, which is basically just burning something, and that's it. And everybody thought, well, that's that's how you treat cancer. You, you know, it's this horrible thing, so you have to just poison the hell out of it, or burn the hell out of it, or preferably both at the same time. And he, as a surgeon, had noticed and had made a bunch of very interesting observations, saying, well, when I operate on people and I see these tumors, they're covered with these blood vessels. So maybe like building a tumor is like building a home. You have to lay all these pipes to bring in all this stuff, all this material and oxygen and nutrients and take out waste. What about if we created a drug that blocked those pipes? Suppose we developed a drug that blocked those pipes. I think, and he had an idea, the tumors are secreting some signal into the body, into the host tissue that's tricking the body into laying new pipes, into growing new blood vessels. Growing new blood vessels is called angiogenesis. And so he came up with this idea of let's block angiogenesis. And that was in 1971. He published that idea and published the data behind it and he began working on it. And people told him, you're crazy. Like that's absurd for every possible reason under the book that you could possibly write, every possible reason under the sun, anything you could imagine. You know, he got back rejection letters that, as he once said, if you want to see rejection, there was a postdoc that came up to him one time and was feeling very sort of depressed and down. And he said, you're feeling depressed because you got rejected. If you want to understand rejection, let me show you pink slips. That's rejection letters from referees and grants that contain the word clown. Mm. Okay, so he was really ridiculed and not just by people at competing labs or distant places, but including in people at his own home institution. Eventually, there was so much uh, resistance to what he was doing, and people said, oh, that stuff is just inflammation, it's just dirt, it doesn't make any sense, why are you spending any money on that, why are you spending your time on that? And he was a really accomplished surgeon, so why are you doing this stuff? And eventually he said um, there was a, 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 the board of his hospital, the board of trustees, convened a committee to evaluate his work, and the committee said it had, essentially has no value. Like, you should just stop doing it, or you should resign your position. Mm. And he said, well, I'll resign my position. And he kept going with his work. And 32 years later, in 2003, June 2003, at the Chicago Convention Center, at the big annual meeting of cancer researchers, a guy stood up on a podium and gave a, 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 a plenary talk, the big talk of the meeting, describing results of one of the largest trials ever done in colon cancer, evaluating a drug based on Judah's ideas. And he flipped the slide and said, here's the results. Patients who got Judah's drug lived longer than anyone had ever lived before with metastatic colon cancer. Standing ovation, you know, transformed the field of cancer. And uh, one, of the, one of the speakers said, oh, if only Dr. Folkman were alive to see this moment. Judah was actually in the audience in the back row. That's <laughs> just, amazing. Just turned to his friend and just smiled and he used to love telling that story. And it did transform the treat of cancer. So much of it, it there's a whole new class of anti-angiogenic therapies that work this way. And Was and, this the story you tell that was built off thalidomide? Thalidomide came from Judah Folkman's lab. And yeah. that led to a company called Celgene, and Celgene actually became a $100 billion company, which is sold for $100 billion. And they developed phenomenal, they transformed the treatment of multiple myeloma to something that was an immediately fatal disease to something that patients can live years and years with, almost a chronic condition. So 
so many things, but even more the science behind it, that the tumors have the signaling with the body and you can interrupt that signaling. That science underlies all cancer treatment today. Nobody works on chemotherapy or radiation. Everybody works on signaling, which is what essentially, and even a lot of people in science and in the field don't appreciate, that's essentially what Judah, Judah Folkman pioneered. So I once asked Judah, who uh, we, we worked with us for, for uh, half a dozen years or so, I once asked uh, Judah, how did you persist? For 32 years, you know, through all these ups and downs and all these failures, and people telling you every day, every year, this will never work. And he said to me, and it always stuck with me, and I try to give this advice to folks who ask me a similar question. He said, there are no experts of the future. That was it, Safi Bacall. Come on. What a podcast. What an interview. What a life. I'm going to go interview Eddie Pepitone now. So be jealous. Love y'all. Bye.